Right, wow. If you have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to um, turn, up, turn up the book of uh, Genesis. And um, I'm just going to read a few verses to us before we get going. So please track along with me. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 2, uh, verses 7 through to 9. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just go forward to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Chapter 3, verse 6 through 10. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verses 22 through to 24. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and on the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, so I'm going to pick up on some of those as we run through tonight. But I want to start with a story, because stories are always a good place to start. Uh, Once upon a time... In a galaxy quite near. Um, I believed a completely different set of theology. And I lived a very different culture. It's important you understand that before I tell this little story. And I was involved in a church context where over a prolonged period of time, we became aware of a number of issues that we felt were challenges. Um, They were all preceded by the phrase, not enough. So there was not enough bums on seats. There was not enough souls being saved. There was not enough people at prayer meetings. There was not enough money coming in, the offering, and so on. And what was interesting was that these issues were being treated as if they were the problem. And the thing is, when those things become treated like the problem, you spend endless hours trying to come up with the solution. And so in that context, we spent hours trying to improve commitment to Sunday meetings. 
guilting the congregation into doing more evangelism, making prayer meetings more sexy, and by that I mean more exciting, I don't mean pole dancers or anything, Um, critiquing the giving patterns of the members of the church and so on. And I remember at that time just getting this little nudge from Father God, and he said to me, if you would channel your energy and resources on the problem rather than the symptoms of the problem, everything would change, and it would change really quickly. And the thing was, we were trying to solve badly from the outside what only the Holy Spirit could do masterfully from the inside. That is the fundamental difference between spiritual life and religion. Religion is always an outside job. In fact, you'll remember the story where Jesus is having a go at some of the religious leaders of the day. And he says, you guys, you're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you're all neat and clean and sparkly and white, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. Because actually what's inside of you is terrible. See, they were trying to do an outside job. But God is always interested in doing an inside job. And that was the heart of that nudge from God. He wanted to do something masterfully on the inside. And so over time, I became convinced that the solution was a simple one. We had one job. And it wasn't to talk about attendance, it wasn't to talk about evangelism, it wasn't to talk about prayer meetings, it wasn't even to talk about giving. It was simply this, talk about the joy of the presence of God. I really felt what God was kind of convinced me was was this simple thing. We had one job, and that was to encourage people at every opportunity and facilitate them being to, able to encounter the living God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the, the God of Moses, the God of David, the God of Solomon, and so on and so forth. And that was actually our challenge. That really showed me where the problem was, and the problem was this, a lack of the reality at the presence of God in our lives. And what I want to say to you tonight really is a precursor before we do anything else at all. I just want to big up how much more of him there is available. Like I really love our context here and I really love the doctrine that we teach and I really love the thrust of our kind of mission and and what we're pointing all of our resources towards. But what I want to say this underpinning all of that is no matter how big you think God is now, there is so much more, like more than you can actually comprehend. Um, There is more love, there is more power, there is more presence, there's more kindness, there's more gentleness, there's more grace, there's more holiness, there's more strength. There are a warehouse full of miraculous events beyond your imagination just waiting. That is how good he is. There's so much more for us to encounter. But here's the thing I discovered in that scenario, and that it was this, that, that what we were going through, what we were struggling with as a church, was not actually something new. 
I found this amazing quote from a guy called E.M. Bounds. He was writing during the American Civil War. And he had this profound revelation. And uh, excuse the archaic language, but this is what he said. He said this. We are constantly at a stretch, if not on a strain, to devise new methods, new plans, new organization to advance the church and secure enlargement and efficiency for the gospel. The trend of the day has the tendency to lose sight of the man or sink the man in the plan or the organization. But God's plan is to make much of the man. Far more of him than of anything else. Men are God's method. The church is looking for, uh, for better methods, but God is looking for better men. And what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organization or more or novel methods, but men whom the Holy Spirit can use. Men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Spirit does not flow through methods or through Uh, But through men, he does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but he anoints men. Now, excuse the archaic language, because I think what he's saying is through people. But I want you to catch the gist of what he's saying. The heart of his treatise is this, that God changes the world through people who have encountered his magnificence. That's it. That's what it's about. That's what Christianity is about. At the end of the day, God is changing this world through people who have encountered his magnificence. And it was true then, and it's true today. And I want to say to you, this is the overriding principle that I have in any ministry I do. I have one heart, and one heart only, and that is to preach to an encounter. Now the good news is, God's ahead of the curve tonight. But for so often... In the church, we've been in this situation where this thing, this book I hold in my hand, which is incredibly precious, people died to give us this book, literally. They died to write it. They died to record the truth of the life of Jesus. They died to put it in a language we can read and understand. People have made this the meal. And what I want to say is this is just the menu. He is the meal. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. So as I preach tonight, I I really want to ask you to start to prepare your hearts. I think God wants to do something beyond and above, which we've already experienced in worship. So I want to start off just by thinking about um, this word. And the word is simply life. There's a little bit of a problem I have with what, Um, Ian Bounds writes in that quote that I gave you and it's simply this he almost makes it sound as if ministry is the only reason we are to encounter the Holy Spirit that the only reason we need all that stuff is to service the gospel but I have a simple question for us at the beginning of tonight and it's this for what reason was the Holy Spirit given to the believer For what reason was the Holy Spirit given to the believer? Was it so we could have better and more exciting meetings? Was it so we could have more impressive tools for ministry? Was it so that we could have a greater boldness in evangelism? Was it that we might have more insightful and perceptive prophecy? Was it that we might have a more effective model of pastoral ministry? 
I honestly believe there are many of us in the Christian world who believe the reason Holy Spirit was given was to help with the task. But if that's true, it means for those who are not involved in those pursuits, then they don't actually need him. And I see a problem with that train of thought. And if it's true that he was only given so that we could kind of do the job a bit better, and we engage with the Holy Spirit because we want to be merely more effective in ministry, then we're actually just developing what Bill Johnson calls professional intimacy. And what do we call people who are intimate for a profession? That's quite profound, isn't it? What I want to say to you is this. He has given us the Holy Spirit so that we may have life. That we might have life. Read these words, Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now the word breath there is the Hebrew word that is consistently used to speak about the spirit of God. His spirit was given so we could have life walking in intimacy with him. Or to put it another way, he gave us the Holy Spirit because we were designed to live that way. That is what it is to be truly human. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. There are certainly some strains of the Christian denominations who believe that the Holy Spirit is what it is to be truly Christian. But what I want to say to you is if you understand what's going on here in Genesis chapter 2, God is telling us being full of his presence, being full of his spirit, being full of his life is what it is to be truly human. Forget the normal Christian life. It's the normal human life to encounter the God of the universe through the infilling of his very presence. And so Genesis 1 and 2 is a template of God's intention, how God pictured creation should be. That's the important word, should be. It's how God pictured mankind should be as part of that creation. And what we have here is more than just a mere inflation of the lungs. If you've ever gone on a first aid training course and you get Rassosi Annie, and you've got to go like, yeah. It's more than inflation of the lungs going on here. This isn't a kickstart to the respiratory system. This is God cutting the template, and in doing so, he is breathing life and showing his intention for all human beings. And it's his Holy Spirit in this moment, in this story, that imparts true life and life to the full. Life and purpose is only found in one place, folks. The very presence of God. You know, when I think about our world, I don't know if any of you watch Netflix and any of those kind of streaming programs. I think there's a thing called The Walking Dead that's showing at the moment. It's one of these zombie you know, kind of series. And um, that's the reality of people after the fall in the book of Genesis. They become the walking dead because they are separated 
from the very thing that was meant to give them life. And so you have this amazing story of this God who we're told in the Bible is spirit. And he creates this material universe. And then out of that material universe, he makes some people who are going to govern it. And he fills them with his spirit. And when we live a life void of encounter, we deny not just the Christian life, not just the meaning of life, but actually our design for life. And my heart breaks that there are, across our globe, Christians who do not realise that they were designed for encounter. They believe that's something that's future tense. You know, when Jesus comes back, I'll get to meet him and kind of engage with God. But it's the very fabric of who God created them to be. And so God's heart grieves for the lives who are void of encounter and he's infilling and infusing life. Not just the prodigals, not just those who've known him and walked away, but those who have never known him. So I want to encourage you, Just as we begin tonight, you know, this thing that we're crazy and bonkers about here, the presence of God, the infilling of God, that's normal. Like there might be those who paint us in the margins and go, oh, they're the crazies. Maybe the crazy people are the normal ones. Secondly, this story is about intimacy. We were designed for intimacy with our creator i have a question this uh, i like sometimes i think of stuff and it's pretty clever but there's sometimes god shows me stuff and that's really clever and he asked me this question and he said this to me mark what was adam's first conscious experience what was the first thing that adam was aware of as the breath of god rushed into him and sparked him into life The first thing that Adam was aware of was actually intimacy with the Father because God was right here, right up close in his face, breathing his very life and presence in. The God of the universe, face to face, imparting himself to Adam. And for Adam, in that moment, the greatest thing in his awareness must have been intimacy with God and that infilling breath and life. Like, that's got to be a pretty overwhelming first experience. I mean, I do feel for babies when they get pulled out of a nice warm place and get a smack on the bum and, it's cold in here, you know. But for Adam, his shock at his birth, at his creation was immensely greater than that he's nothing he's he's literally in god's hand a handful of dust i know some of the scientific community who are atheistic kind of think we're a bit backwards because we think god made people out of mud pies but when it says god made man out of the dust of the ground it just means at the material level you and i are made of the same stuff as everything else in fact there's a great episode of um the original 1950s Batman. Don't know if you remember that, Adam West. And um, in this particular episode, whoever the baddie is has got this dehydrating gun. And he sucks water out of people until all that's left on the floor is a little pile of dust. That's you and me. 
That's what we would be like if you suck the water out. And here's what I discovered. To the biochemist, you and I are worth about 20 quid. There'd be enough fat for five bars of soap, or in my case, seven. Um, There'd be enough iron for a medium-sized nail. There'd be enough sugar for seven cups of tea. There'd be enough lime to whitewash one chicken coop. There'd be enough phosphorus to make 2,000 matches. There'd be enough magnesium for one dose of salts, enough potassium to explode one toy crane, and enough, enough sulfur to get rid of one dog's fleas. So why is murder such a big deal? If all we're worth is about 20 quid, why is it such a big deal? Well, two reasons. Number one, you are made in the image of him. But secondly, you're full of him. You were designed to be full of him. And so there's Adam, and he is just a collection of dust, until that moment that God breathes life, but he does it intimately, face to face. So how's your intimacy with him? I don't ask that as a judgmental question. I just ask it as a prompt. Because sometimes in this life, we can get so busy and so rushed and so full of everything else that's going on that we actually forget to ask ourselves that. When was the last time you just took an hour and a half to go and bask in his presence? You know, Anne and I try as regularly as possible to kind of book in a date night in the diary because we know that if we don't, everybody else's diary will fill ours. Because we value our relationship. But what I want to say to you is, how many of us do that for God? How many of us say, I'm going to have a date night with God. I'm going to have some good quality time. The phone is switched off. TV is switched off. It's just us. And I'm going to bask in his glorious love. I want to encourage you to think about that. You know, and that's what Paul's writing about in Ephesians 3 when he prays this great prayer for the church at Ephesus. And he says, I'm praying that you would comprehend, that you would lay hold of the length, the breadth, the depth, the height, the love of Christ. It's not just something to be mentally understood. It's something to be experienced. Like you can stand outside of a hot tub and look at it and go, square full of water, it's bubbling. But to truly comprehend a hot tub, you have to get your cosy on and hop in. Probably have some Prosecco or something with it. You know, that would complete the experience. But it's something you've got to be in to truly get. You can't just observe it from a distance. And God is just like that. And so Paul, in that prayer in Ephesians 3, I believe, gives us an invitation to be, as John Piper calls himself, a Christian hedonist. Someone who is going to delight themselves in the pleasures of Christ. The joy of being in communion with him. And so that got me thinking, I just, I just really came to this point where we need to live in such a way that nothing gets bigger in our awareness than God's presence. If anything does, then it becomes bigger than him. And then we're guaranteed to act from insecurity, anxiety, fear, and so on. And our response, if we are having those things as our ultimate awareness, will always be sinful. You know, if I can be honest with you, you know, I'm 50 this year. Not yet. Still in my 40s, just. By the skin of my teeth. But I'm 50 this year. I have had plenty of opportunity in my life and my Christian life to mess up. I did 25 years non-Christian. I'll be celebrating in a week or so 25 years as a Christian. 
I've had plenty of opportunity in both those contexts to completely foul up in the most spectacularly biblical ways. And I can guarantee you this. Every time I have done that, every stupid, sinful failure has actually been preceded by a moment of ignorance about his amazing presence. For 25 years, it was because I didn't know about how amazing he was. But then when I became a Christian, it was those times when I just stopped allowing him to be the number one thing in my perception. And when that happens, you kind of cool quite quickly. And then suddenly other things look more interesting. C.S. Lewis said this in his... um, And he's writing on the weight of glory. He says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but actually too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the seaside. We are far too easily pleased. That's profound, isn't it? People don't slip into drink and drugs and sex and blowing loads of money because their passions are too strong. It's because they're too weak. They're so easily satisfied. Because actually what he offers is so much, so much more amazing than that. You know, um, one of my favourite films of all time to watch with my kids when they were a bit smaller was The Prince of Egypt. Which is a really good cartoon, really good cartoon. And um, it always makes me laugh at the end of that film because Moses comes down from the mountain and he's got the two tablets. And there in the valley below you see literally hundreds of thousands of the Hebrews who've just been freed from Egypt. And the credits start rolling and you think, what a great film. The problem is if you play that tape for another two minutes, the tablets are broken, 3,000 of the Hebrews are dead, And there's chaos and mayhem going on. Why? Because of the golden calf. And I always used to wonder what that was about. How could these people who had just seen God move in so many spectacular ways, how could they suddenly just totally lose the plot? And I discovered something really profound. You see, you have to remember the Hebrews were in Egypt for 400 years. So genetically, they're Hebrew. But culturally, they were thinking like Egyptians. And this is how Egyptians saw the world. The gods were unseen. And therefore, what was important to them was the manifestation of the gods. That's why they had so many statues and paintings and carvings of all these myriad gods that they worshipped. So you now translate that to the Hebrew world. Moses rocks up out of the desert. Hey guys, I've just had this amazing quiet time with God. He turned up fire and a bush. Oh, wow, he's going to free us. Look at this stick. You won't believe what this stick does. Look, it's cool, isn't it? And then, ten times, one after another, he goes out and he goes, kapow, and God acts with power. Kapow, God acts with power. All the way up to the tenth plague. And then Pharaoh says, get out of here. I've had enough of you. So they leave. And then suddenly they're hemmed in against the Red Sea. And Moses, one more time, goes, kapow, and the Red Sea parts. And they're free. And then like 10 minutes later, it seems like they've lost the plot completely and they're worshipping a golden calf. You see, you have to understand in that moment, 
in their story, in the culture they were familiar with, Yahweh was unseen. And at every point of the story so far, Moses had been the manifestation of the unseen Yahweh. Ten times, kapow, 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 kapow. Freedom, the Red Sea, and then what does Moses do? Guys, I'm just going on a 40-day sabbatical. I'll be back. What goes through their heads? They lose touch with the manifest presence of God. In that case, as it had been channeled through Moses. So what do they do? They turn back to everything that's familiar from their previous life. Many of the Egyptian gods are personified in bovine form. They'd lost touch with the manifest presence of God. What happens? They turn back to everything that was familiar from their life of slavery. And that's my big appeal on this point is we are so easily satisfied because quite often we have lost touch with the manifest presence of God. You know, that's why Paul says to us, keep in step with the Spirit. Keep being, being filled. Continuous, ongoing tense with the Spirit. Why? Because when you're just so overwhelmed with the very thing you were created for, which is to be full of Him and experience Him and have intimacy with Him, you live life as you should. But when you lose that, guess what? Other things easily satisfy. Third thing I want to say. It's interesting, this is about a walk. Genesis 3.8 And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid. Most of the people I've read on this seem to think that what's being described in this bit of the story would have been a normal everyday occurrence for Adam and Eve. That in the cool of the day... God would come and commune with them. Hi, how's your day been? What have you been up to today? What did you grow today? Which bit of the garden did you like, you know, do all the work on? How's the rockery coming along? I like the pond. Are you going to put the two newts in there? Every day in the cool of the day, that literally means the evening breeze. The, re- the word there is ruach. That's the Old Testament word for the Spirit of God. So in the evening ruach, in the evening breath, in the evening spirit, God would commune strong and chat with them. It's in the Holy Spirit that God would commune with them. And so they have this walking together and sharing the journey. And obviously this day is very different as everything has suddenly changed. God asks the question, Where are you? Not because he doesn't know, but because he wants them to understand things are not as they were. He wants Adam to understand the huge quantum shift in circumstances. Hey Adam, you're hiding from me. That's not normal. Why would you do that? This walking together in the garden speaks of a shared journey and common destination and matched footsteps. And that is Father's heart. For each of our lives, that we would walk with him in in encounter, in awareness, in experiential relationship. I get really frustrated when I watch YouTube clips and read books by people who perhaps don't have the same stream as us. The same understanding of the things of the Holy Spirit. That's not to say we're better, but they just have a different understanding. And I feel so sad sometimes because their expectation of what they can experience God in this life is so different. And it breaks my heart. It really breaks my heart. 
Paul says we cry out Abba Father by the Holy Spirit who is shed abroad in our hearts. That's an experiential thing. You understand that? When he invokes the heart. That's a, it's in here. There's something tangible. And that's the Father's heart for our lives, that we walk with him in encounter, in awareness, in an experiential relationship. And I just love the Old Testament. It's full of intriguing stories. And one of my favorite ones is around this guy called Enoch. It just says he walked with God. And then he was no more. God took him. I can imagine that every day they strolled together. And God one day just went, hey, hey Enoch, we're, we're closer to my place than yours. Do you want to come in? <laughs> but they walked together. I only do what the Father's doing, said Jesus. I only say what the Father's saying. Roman 8, the sons of God are led by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit, Paul says. You need to understand that you were designed to walk with God. Like everyone was, not just some people. It is in the very fabric of the creation. And this leads me to, I think, just the most wondrous bit really that I want to talk about gift. So you get this really sad part of the story and they, they make this stupid choice and there's consequences to that and we're told that man is driven out of the east side of the garden and in the gateway or the doorway there is placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And by placing the angel, which let's be honest, cherubim are pretty fearsome, do you know that? Like they're the weird ones with many faces and covered in eyeballs and all of that kind of stuff. You know, when angels turn up, their normal first words are, fear not, yeah, okay. So this fearsome angel is placed, and it sends a clear message. Now, depending on your framework of thinking, will depend what message you get. What I see is this, that the only way back to the way things should be is by coming through God. Adam and Eve, you cannot just stroll in here and come back as if you can sort this mess out. You've actually got to come through me. I'm placing one of my guardian angels, as it were, to guard this place. You can't just walk in and fix this thing yourself. It's that, it's that huge. That, that's one part of it. But you see, you need to understand that underlying this story is an enemy who wanted to be God. His name's Satan. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be worshipped as God. And he was cast from the presence of God. And his first recorded act, he makes this move where he tries to instigate the fracture of relationship between God and man so that man may no longer enjoy and encounter his creator, the very thing he was designed to do. Now, I used to think that angel and the sword was punishment. But God's given me a new pair of eyes on it recently, and it's this. It actually was provision. And let me explain how. God doesn't want Adam eating from the tree of eternal life in the state that he is in. A state that means he is actually separated 
from God and dead to God and is no longer inhabited by God. God says, I don't want that to be your eternal context. So he places this angel at the gate to stop him from reaching that tree which would give him essentially eternal life. Instead, God's saying, I want you to come to me so we can fix this thing and then you can have eternal life. But the context for your eternal life is that you are going to have fellowship with me. You're going to have relationship with me. You'll have the right to be intimate with me. And not only that, that will be your context for the rest of eternity. We always have to view every story in scripture through the eyes of grace. Or we will come up with some abominable doctrines. Does that make sense? Because it's almost like God hates him. You're not coming to play in my garden anymore. But it's not that. He doesn't want him being left in this state for eternity. And we just get this. I'll go there in a sec. Coming out of this, I just want to say this. Salvation is not just a ticket to heaven. Salvation is not about getting to a place. Salvation is the undoing of the curse. It provides the return to Eden. The gift of being able to return to a state where we can have his life. Where we can be filled by him. Where we can experience him in intimacy. Where we can walk with him without shame or fear. And yet too many Christians see the goal of salvation is getting saved. Or getting to heaven. I want to say to you, salvation is not about getting to a place. Salvation is about meeting a person. I just love, I'm just coming into land now, but I just love this first explanation of the gospel after the ascension of Jesus. This is Peter on the day of Pentecost. In Acts 2.38, in mind everyone's going, what on earth is this crazy chaos going on? These people are hammered. And he responds, and he unpacks a bit of Old Testament history and theology, but he says this, repent and be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want you to understand that. The gift of salvation is not heaven. It's a person. Heaven is just the reality of that person for eternity. Do you get that? People who sort of aren't of the faith but kind of have vague spiritual interests, like, oh yeah, I'd like to get to heaven, but they want heaven without God, they want heaven without Christ, they want heaven without the Holy Spirit. Like it's some sort of all-in, fully paid up, you know, full board, drinks included, swimming pool, holiday venue, we just go to party. No, no, the very point of heaven is, heaven is only heaven because of the person who inhabits it. That brings us right back full circle. The creation of humanity. God says, I'm going to create you so you can experience me in intimacy and in the depth of your being. Life, intimacy, walk, gift. It's all ours for the taking. Now maybe... I've not quite persuaded you this evening, and maybe you're sat there saying, well, I don't know about this, I'm not sure I qualify. 
I just want to say this. God designed human beings to be face to face with him and full of him. That was how he designed us. And if you are walking any other kind of walk, you are experiencing less than he created you for. Just as a base level understanding of who you are, whether you are a Christian or not, that is what he created you for. To be face to face with him and full of his awesome, amazing, magnificent presence. Now maybe you're saying, okay, yeah, I bought into that, but I feel disqualified because, well, you know, I did this thing or I did that thing. I want to tell you, 50 years, I've done some stuff. I've done stuff I wouldn't want to tell my mum about. I'd be more happy telling Jesus. Seriously. And here's the amazing thing. In that story, in the garden, in their nakedness, in their shame, God covers their nakedness with skins. Animal skins. I don't know if you've read that bit. With animal skins. That tells me something important. Something died to cover their shame. The gospel is right there in the garden. It's the first thing that we record ever in the history of the Bible dies to cover sin and shame. And what I want to say to you is that is just a foretelling. That's a prophetic kind of look into the future about what Jesus is going to come and do. And I want to say to you, he does that willingly for us. He died to cover our shame. And because our shame is dealt with and is no more, our sin is completely dealt with by his death. We are told in the New Testament we can boldly approach the throne with confidence. So what I want to say tonight is this. Understand what you were created for and realise there's nothing stopping you. So should we do it? Should we take some moments and just do what we were created to do? Sasha, would you mind joining me? Thank you. Let's stand. I want you to tune my voice out now because I've talked enough, but I just want you to begin to tune in to the voice of heaven. I want you to hear the Father's heart for you, that creation intent, that when he made Adam and Eve, he was actually thinking of you. When he created them to be face-to-face in intimacy and full of his magnificent presence, he was also thinking of you because he use them to be your template. And right now in this place this evening, I really believe he wants to take each of us to a greater level of understanding what that intimacy looks like and how full of his awesome heavenly presence we can be. So I want to invite you to invite him. You can either do that verbally out loud Sometimes actually doing an action or actually saying something can be helpful. Maybe you just want to do it in your heart. But I just, let's just have a swell of invitation for God to come and do what we were designed to do, which is come and fill our lives right now. Fill our awareness, Jesus, come. Fill this place with your magnificent glory. Yeah, just come. Come, Lord Jesus.
It's a lovely story in the New Testament where it just says Jesus breathed. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And I just want to say to you, breathe in. Breathe in the fragrance of heaven. Breathe in the presence of heaven. Breathe in the very person of God.